New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring soul initiation. My guest is Bill Plotkin, who is the founder of the Animus Valley Institute located in Western Colorado. He is the author of several books, including Soul Craft, Crossing into the Mysteries of Nature and Psyche, Nature in the Human Soul, Cultivating Wholeness and Community in a Fragmented World, Wild Mind, A Field Guide to the Human Psyche, and most recently, The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thanks. I recall last time we spoke that uh, we had originally met back in 1973, so we've been following similar paths, parallel in some ways, for many, many decades. And now, here you are, you're the author of four books about the nature of the soul. Today, I want to explore with you the process of soul initiation. And I know that's a term that you use very specifically. People might think they understand what soul initiation is, but uh, why don't you define soul and soul initiation uh, as you use those terms? Great. Yeah, it's, it's the um, best place to start. Because I do use the terms in uh, ways that are not familiar to most contemporary people. Uh, this whole journey of soul initiation has fallen off the map of the Western world and most contemporary industrial societies uh, hundreds if not thousands of years ago. So it's not what most people think it is. And so I'll, I'll ask our listeners to be open-minded to consider the possibility this might be somewhat new. So first, the... Um, concept of soul, which of course is used quite regularly in religious circles and spiritual um, disciplines and practices, and also of course psychology, and everyday life for that matter. Um, and I'm trained as a psychologist and a psychotherapy practice for many years, but I discovered that the way the word soul is used in psychology and also in spiritual practices is um, uh, in ways that I, I think don't get right to the essence of it. Plus, the word is used in so many different ways, uh, which makes it confusing. So um, what I ended up concluding is that part of the mystery of soul is that it really isn't a psychological concept, and it really isn't even a spiritual concept. It's primarily ecological. And once I began to understand soul in the context of ecology, just so many things fell into place. So here's it's a very simple definition. The soul of a thing is its unique niche in its ecosystem. That everything is born to take a particular place in its world, in its uh, more than human world, in, its, in the earth community into which it is born. And um, some people feel that when they hear my definition, that one, namely, 
um, a thing's unique ecological niche, that I've changed the topic. Um, and I'm not really talking about what they mean by soul at all. However, I beg to differ because um, just in terms of connotation, when just about anybody uses the word soul, they're talking about something that has to do with the deepest meaning or the deepest joy of our life or our, our, our purpose for being uh, a human uh, on the earth at this time. And if you think about it, our unique ecological niche is exactly what would give us the deepest purpose uh, and meaning. It really, um, the way I use the word soul uh, corresponds to what many traditions might call something like our original instructions. Each one of us, imagine that this could be true. Each one of us is born with a set of instructions, a type of knowledge that is not linguistic and it's not culturally based, but a set of knowledge of how to fit into the world in a way that we end up contributing our greatest gift to the world, uh, a gift that not only helps sustain life, but uh, enhances the life of not our own life, not just our own life and not our families or communities' life and not human life in general, but the life of the greater Earth community. So for, to some people that might just seem obvious, but others it might seem, oh, it's kind of far-fetched. We're born with that kind of knowledge. But what we know from biology is that everything is born with original knowledge. And most uh, animals, for example, don't even have parents beyond the moment of birth. And so like a salmon, for example, is born knowing what its place is and how to and when to uh, migrate down to the sea and how many years to spend in the sea and, and when to come back and how to get back and, and all of that. Um, so I've made this outrageous, radical proposition that maybe we humans aren't any different in that sense, that maybe we too, for somehow we're not an exception to evolution uh, on this planet, and we too are born with original instructions. So, um, the journey of soul initiation is the process that takes several years, uh, longer if you don't know what's happening and, or you don't have a guide. Um, it's the process of initiation that results in what I consider to be true adulthood, which is a stage of life that I have concluded uh, the vast majority of contemporary people never reach. That we get stuck in actually a psychological um, early adolescence because of the nature of our, our cultural practices and what we've lost, including the initiation rights, all the initiation rights, not just this one. Um, so I believe that every healthy culture in the past, including our own, if we go back enough thousand years, our, um, had some version of what I call the journey of soul initiation. And um, there's very, uh, most people in the world now live in cultures that have lost that journey a long, long time ago. And I believe any healthy culture of the future will have a version of the journey. So in 40 years of guiding uh, thousands of people on this journey, my colleagues and I have ended up, you might say, two things. One is a deep structure map of the basic patterns of the journey. That, that our hypothesis is we would find 
um, that in any culture that has a version of this journey, it would uh, exhibit these the same pattern, in particular these five phases of what I call the descent to soul. Um, so that's one thing we did is we mapped the journey um, in its deep structure. And the second thing is we created our own contemporary Western nature-based version of it. In other words, we did not appropriate uh, practices uh, uh, or maps from any other uh, culture, from any indigenous people, for example. Um, and we didn't base our work based on theories, but rather what, actu what is the actual experience that people go through when we're guiding them the best we can? And where did our early maps not quite fit the experiences that people were um, reporting? And how did we have to change the map so that it fit the patterns we were observing? So I guess that's a good initial intro. That, that's a good intro. And I know that you distinguished between soul initiation, as you use the term, from many other approaches that are common today that people might get confused with, like uh, a vision quest or psychotherapy or um, a shamanistic initiation. Um, that's a, exactly right. You know, the, um, as you know, Jeff, our, the way the human mind works, um, maybe actually any kind of mind, is that we have certain, as we grow up, we develop certain maps of what are the possibilities in the world. And when we come across something that's new, we kind of assume it isn't new, or we, we might assume it's just a new version of something we already know about. And so when we're learning about something, or even beginning to experience it, we just make the assumption, oh, this is a version of such and such. Um, but um, that's why I say that what, the journey of soul initiation is so far off the map of the Western world that um, you're likely to misunderstand it, um, including the ones you've mentioned, Jeff. Uh, I don't think you mentioned this one, which is rite of passage. Um, most people assume what we're doing at Animus Valley Institute are rites of passage, and the truth is we virtually never guide rites of passage. We do sometimes when someone's actually going through a major life passage. But the journey of soul initiation is a journey that um, takes place in between major two major passages, namely the passage from what I call early adolescence to late adolescence. That's after that passage, the journey starts. And the journey ends when a person makes the passage from late adolescence to true adulthood. So um, the journey is not a rite of passage. I think you already mentioned it's not a therapy process. It's not a hero's journey, the way Joseph Campbell um, described it in his book, um, Hero with a Thousand Faces. It has very significant differences from a hero's journey. Um, it's not what Jungian analysts do in their offices, well, virtually never. And it's not a way to discover your social or vocational purpose. It's a way to discover what we animists call our mythopoetic identity. So let me just describe that briefly. I've already mentioned that um, we use the word soul to mean our unique ecological niche. But when a person has a soul encounter, which is a glimpse of that niche, it's not like it's a readout of a literal ecological niche. Um, rather, it's an experience of a metaphor that might be through a dream or an image 
or an interaction with um, some being of nature or, is, um, or a, a deep sudden insight of the pattern, the deep pattern your life has always made but you didn't have seen before then. Um, so um, when we have that metaphorical glimpse, that's the way our human consciousness shows us our unique ecological niche. We call it um, a discovery of mythopoetic identity and um, give you at least one quick um, example. Um, I've had um, a few soul encounters, but my first one, which happened to be on a vision fast in 1980, um, I had an interaction with a spruce tree and a butterfly in which the butterfly ended up flying towards me and actually um, brushed the left side of my face with her wing and then I heard, this is after four days of fasting, so I was open to that kind of communication. And I heard her say, cocoon weaver. And I didn't really know what was going on. I was really busy at the time doing something else, which was carefully observing this community of these little mammals called pikas who live at Treeline, where I was in the Colorado mountains. And they were gathering their watercress and other herbs uh, for the coming winter. And I was sitting there experiencing myself as um, trying to be the best apprentice as I could be to them because I knew I was there on my vision fast for spiritual gathering. And I felt these little pikas were really good at that kind of thing. And I, w I wanted to apprentice myself to them. So then when the butterfly came by, it was kind of an interruption. And uh, I just didn't want to even give it that much um, time because I was busy with this community of pikas. So I turned my journal sideways and just put in the margin, a butterfly just came by, said to me, cocoon weaver. And because I didn't think it was that important. And I went on like that for about a minute or two and then something erupted in my belly uh, and, and came out through my mouth as something like a whale and I realized um, that I had essentially just been struck by lightning, by some kind of psycho-spiritual lightning, and that that this idea of weaving cocoons would, would be what my life was about, even though I had absolutely no idea what that could possibly mean at the time. But I meant that as just an um, example of a mythopoetic identity, one who weaves cocoons, whereas um, Carl Jung, a lot of people might know, especially those who've read uh, his red book, or even his memoir, that he had two soul encounters, and in one, his he, his mythopoetic identity was revealed as the one who speaks to and for the dead, literally. And um, his second one was something like the one who introduces to the world the reality of what he called it, the self, and that that soul encounter came from a dream. I'm glad that you brought up Carl Jung because many of our viewers will be familiar with the Red Book. And, and it's quite interesting that Jung himself went through a process that you'd have to say is very different uh, than the process of Jungian psychotherapy. So you're, you're suggesting that, that what happened to Jung and, and what happened to you 
even though it might be as gentle as a brush on your cheek by a butterfly, uh, has transformed your life and and really sort of set the pattern for uh, decades for the work you've been doing. Exactly. That's, um, it did set the pattern or the blueprint for what I was to do in my life. And so um, when we, go through that passage of soul initiation, which is the end of early adolescence, a stage I call, not surprisingly, the cocoon stage. And we go into uh, early adulthood, which I call um, the wellspring. And the um, human archetype for that stage is the uh, apprentice or the soul apprentice. Um, As a new soul apprentice, one of our first jobs or tasks is to choose one or more um, what I call delivery systems for our mythopoetic identity. Um, Because when soul speaks to us, soul doesn't say, here's the job I want you to, to have, or the career I'd like you to go into, or the social role I feel you ought to have. That's that's ego language. I don't that's not a criticism. That's that's everyday middle world village language. Um, and the soul doesn't speak that language. The soul speaks in symbol and metaphor and dreams. So um, soul didn't tell me and could not have told me, by the way, Bill, a great way for you to weed cocoons would to be a psychotherapist or um, to guide vision fasts or to write books or to um, develop something called soulcraft, which I ended up doing. Um, So those are all examples of delivery systems. And that's one, as I say, that's one of the early tasks of a newly initiated adult is to choose one or more delivery systems. And most commonly, um, what a person does is chooses a delivery system that already exists in their culture. And they apprentice themselves to somebody or some discipline that has created a craft or an art um, that the individual, the initiate, newly initiated adult, feels like this would be a good vehicle, a good delivery system. Um, so, um, as I mentioned, uh, Jung had these mythopoetic identities. He called it his personal myth, by the way. That's the term he used. And he used the word soul to mean something completely different. Um, but his personal myth was had to do with uh, introducing um, this uh, archetype of wholeness, the self, to the world, and also to introduce um, the dead and the um, our relationship to the unconscious. And he did that by being a psychiatrist and being a trainer of uh, analysts and, and so forth. Well, one of the interesting things about Jung's journey, of course, he, he was already well established as a psychiatrist and as the heir apparent to the whole Freudian uh, 
establishment before he broke with Freud and began his journey, his descent, as you call it, into, into the depths of his own soul where he received this initiation. I think in his case, it took more than just a few years. It probably took over a, a decade or so. And, and I gather from reading your book that in, in many cases, this is a, not just a process of one or two or five years. It could be a process of 10 or 20 or 30 years. Yeah. The um, stage of life, again, is the, I call it the cocoon, corresponds to late adolescence, um, typically takes several years. And um, you can get stuck in any stage. As I say, most contemporary people get stuck in early adolescence. Um, but a lot of uh, the people in our generation, Jeff, I think got stuck in the cocoon. Um, and we got into the cocoon, many of us, because of um, our experiences with psychedelic uh, substances that knocked us into the cocoon. But we didn't really know what was happening to us, and we might have got stuck there. Um, or we might just spend a long time in the cocoon, longer than you would find in a, a healthy culture. Uh, Carl Jung, by my reading, I don't remember exactly, I think it was about 16 years he was in the cocoon. And there was, um, for example, 11 years between his two soul encounters. And his first one was something like four or five or more years after he entered the cocoon. Um, and he was, if I have this right, he was 52, I believe, at the time of his second soul encounter, and um, which was a dream. Um, it's the Liverpool, it's known as the Liverpool dream. And I believe he went into uh, what I would call early adulthood, the uh, apprentice at the Wellspring, at age 52, which might seem late, but put it into context. So most contemporary people never even get to late adolescence. One of the points that you make is that the many social and ecological problems we're facing on this planet today cannot be addressed directly by trying to treat the symptom because the ultimate cause of the problem is, is that humans as a whole are not achieving their potential, not achieving what you would call maturity. Uh, absolutely. I do believe that. Um, that Every single major crisis on the planet now, and there are many, as everybody knows, I believe it's ultimately has resulted from uh, widespread developmental arrest in the human species. Um, the, the contemporary industrialized consumer cultures, um, you could say, wouldn't be far-fetched at all to say we're designed to keep people from growing up. So, for example, um, that in healthy cultures, including uh, earlier versions of our own Western societies, the way that one becomes initiated into one's true life, one's soul life, is metaphorically to go down, to take a journey down into the center. Um, it's not a journey up towards the divine, it's, uh, which is also a, an essential spiritual journey, but a complementary spiritual journey, which is totally off the map of the mainstream Western world, is to go down. And everybody knows what the Western world did with that journey. It's called being sent to hell for being a bad child. So what a great way to keep people from growing up. You take um, the essential spiritual journey that goes down to the 
the center of the psyche and the center of the world, and you say it's a place for bad people. Um, and so many of our religious traditions, our religious organizations, we should really say, um, keep us from growing up. And our educational systems help us um, develop in certain ways, but suppress much of our innate human capacities. So um, this is being discovered by, of course, many organizations and teachers and guides around the world. Um, it turns out that probably 75% of the people who come to our Animus Valley Institute offerings, our five and more day immersions, um, aren't yet ready for the journey of soul initiation. They're not psycho-spiritually prepared. Um, that's our main work, but we realized we're not going to be able to do our main work with that many people unless we get really good at preparing them. And so essentially, um, much of our work is helping people who are in a healthy early adolescence, psychologically, um, address their needs to cultivate what we call the four innate facets of human wholeness, and also to learn how to befriend the parts of their psyches that um, get them into all kinds of trouble that we call uh, that are inner protectors. These things are, are introduced in my book, Wild Mind, um, so that we, instead of getting angry and trying to get rid of parts of ourselves, like our inner critic was one example, or inner escapist, um, or a wounded child, is to um, embrace these parts and thank them for doing such a great job of having kept us safe. And then uh, and the only way to embrace them effectively so that they relax is if we develop our four facets of wholeness, which are precisely the resources we need in order to self-heal. Um, we also, as part of preparation for the journey, we help people um, address the developmental tasks of early childhood, middle childhood, and of course early adolescence that were um, not as fully um, addressed as need be in order to get into, to move into late adolescence. And let me say that um, when, a, when a person moves from one stage of life to another, like early adolescence to late or adolescence to adulthood and so on, it's not because they choose to. It's not up to us um, to say, okay, I've done enough of early adolescence, let me take on late adolescence. And it's not up to any elder or adult initiator to say, I think you've done enough, I'm going to graduate you. Rather, the way it works is more of an organic process that when we have um, address the tasks of our current and earlier stages deeply enough. Mystery, I like to use the word mystery. It could be soul, but I like to say mystery tosses us into the next stage. And um, we won't go into the next stage until we're ready for it. And mystery is the one that decides um, if, we're, if we're ready or not. And let's a surprising thing to a lot of people is to discover that when we move from one stage to another, it's partly a celebration, but it's mainly uh, a time of grieving because we only get moved into the next stage of life when mystery feels we've done a great job at the previous stage. And that means we're doing, we, we get, we're doing that stage really well. We understand it. We can 
We know how to operate and get around in that stage. And we're really enjoying that stage. So um, major life passages happen, you might say, by definition, at the worst possible time, when we're just at the peak of our game in the previous stage. And then we have to go through this very difficult process of orienting to an entirely new stage, which has a, a different form of consciousness and a different understanding of the world. And that's what rites of passage are for. And thank God for rites of passage because they don't make someone move from one stage to the next. They support someone whose center of gravity has already moved and just recently moved to the next stage. And it helps them, the person, orient and begin to understand what this new stage is about. And it lets the community know, hey, this is someone who, like, for example, has just gone through puberty and they're a different kind of person now and they need a certain kind of support. You used the metaphor of the cocoon earlier, and I, I think it's a wonderful metaphor, but if we look at it closely, we see the caterpillar is radically changed in the process of, of going into the cocoon. The caterpillar comes out a completely different creature. You could say the caterpillar died and a, and a new being, a completely new being was, was born, even though it's actually the same creature. Uh, in, in a different stage. But you also point out that it's risky because many times the caterpillars don't make it, that going into the cocoon entails a, a willingness to die to your old self. Exactly. I just read something that was on my refrigerator this morning for years, and I, of course I, I stopped looking at it years ago. And it, but for some reason this morning I noticed it, and it says just when they caterpillar thought the world was over it becomes a butterfly so yeah that is a metaphor we use um, the cocoon experience for this one particular spiritual adventure which is the most important one or the core experience that happens during the journey of soul initiation and we call it the descent to soul um, it can happen descent to soul has to happen at least once during the journey and it can happen several times and it can even happen after the journey. Um, and my new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, is actually about the descent to soul, primarily. And um, I, I, through our 40 years of guiding this experience for people, um, we've ended up with a map that, it, at least currently, it has five phases. Um, and these five phases are quite different, again, from Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey and also from Arnold Van Genep's um, map or model of rites of passage. So one way to understand these five phases is to um, look at the phases that a caterpillar goes through. And the first phase we call preparation. And for the uh, caterpillar, it's preparing for its metamorphosis by, if it's a moth caterpillar, it's weaving a cocoon of silk for itself. And maybe it knows that what it's weaving is a tomb. And maybe it even knows, but it probably doesn't, that what it's weaving is also a womb. But it's a tomb first. And um, um, the oh, you know, the butterfly caterpillar does something a little different. It's, it's just one of those of the billions of miracles of nature. The, the 
um, butterfly caterpillar, its its body turns itself into essentially a cocoon, which biologists call a chrysalis. Um, but in both cases, that's preparation is creating the space um, where the transformation can happen. And for us humans, the preparation phase is, um, as we do it at Animus, is those things I was at least alluding to a little bit earlier, Jeff, namely cultivating our four facets of human wholeness, so, so all four of them are strong, and um, developing or enhancing our capacity for self-healing, which is to say embracing our inner protectors, and also addressing the task of our earlier life stages. Um, but here's one thing I think it's important to mention. In a healthy culture, um, preparation is basically your whole life up until maybe the middle of your teens. Um, that the things I just talked about, uh, what we call holding, cultivating wholeness, self-healing, and so on, that's something that every child is, is taught how to do, and early adolescents you know, get pretty darn good at. Okay, so that's preparation. Back to the caterpillar. Now it's in the chrysalis or the cocoon. And what starts happening, who knows if caterpillar knows this? Maybe they've, they've the, the butterfly elders, the moth elders have told them myths, who knows. But um, the caterpillar's body, phase two, starts dissolving. And it keeps dissolving to it's almost totally caterpillar soup. And so we use that uh, analogy to name the second phase for humans, which is um, dissolution. What dissolves for us is not our body, but our adolescent ego, our healthy, wonderful, beautiful, um, magnificent adolescent ego, which is to say um, everything we thought who we were, turns out we realized it's wrong. That's not who we were. It, was, it wasn't wrong then, but it's not going to be right for the future. Um, and um, whatever social roles I had or job or vocation, that's not who I am, even if I continue in, with some of those. And um, what my understanding of the world is, it's not, it's very incomplete. And so the identity is what dissolves for humans, and it can be really scary. Even if you know what's happening, it could be scary. If you don't know what's happening, and no one around you knows what's happening, and you let people know how disoriented you are, you might end up with a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist who doesn't have a clue what's going on for you and will uh, intervene in a way that aborts the journey. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. Okay, back to the... Um, oh. It, what we do at Animus is we, of course, have a model that helps people understand what's happening for them when they, their identity starts to dissolve. We congratulate them, and we help them with practices that will make it go faster and more intense and amplify it and make it, in a sense, even worse, which is to say more effective. <laughs> um, and we create a, a holding environment, essentially, for them to go through that. So essentially, we as guides, we're creating a cocoon space for them to go through this experience. Um, the descent to soul, did I mention? It could take months, uh, if not a year or more, to go through a descent. Um, so it's, it's not like a weekend workshop kind of thing. Okay. Um, so the third phase for the caterpillar, it's now caterpillar soup. And at, at a certain moment, 
there are these cells that these biological cells that have been in the caterpillar from its birth that have been sleeping and actually been hiding out because the caterpillar immune system would have tried to destroy them if 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 the immune system could have and biologists call these cells uh, imaginal cells which is a fantastic term and they're actually re it refers to um, the Latin term for an adult of the species, either a moth or a butterfly, which is the imago. So the imaginal cells are the, the ones who know how to imagine flight and how to create a butterfly or a moth body out of the recyclable materials of a former caterpillar. Um, so that middle phase, Solon Connor, is when the imaginal cells wake up, they come out of hiding, and the caterpillar gets this we can pretend, it gets this vision of a, a flying creature. Back to the human. This middle phase of five, the third one, we call um, solon coming. And that's when the human has this glimpse of their mythopoetic identity. And again, it can come through a dream or interaction with an um, animal or a waterfall or come through a deep insight and and other possibilities. Um, but here's an important thing to say about soul encounter. It is not primarily information. In fact, sometimes it's not information at all. In the, the book, um, I've, I tell the story of Joanna Macy's uh, journey of soul initiation. She, of course, is our um, beloved earth elder and uh, scholar of Buddhism and deep ecology and eco-philosopher and uh, developer of the work that reconnects, among other things. Um, her first soul encounter, and I have spoken with her about this many times, so it's not, I'm just not, not making stuff up, um, was happened when she was um, 28, I believe. It was during her Saturn return, which is not at all unusual. And it was just after she gave birth to her second child. And um, she was, her birth tears were being sewn up by the physician and she was given ether, this is a long time ago, and um, she had this vision of herself in space turning on a great wheel. And, um, and it's bringing you through a series of total opposites, like warm and cold, or stasis and frenetic movement and so on. Reason and passion was another one. And through this soul encounter, she's not given an image of what she used to do in life but she is changed to the core, let's say cellularly or alchemically. And um, I think she said something like it was the deepest encounter with truth she had had in her life. That's the soul encounter because it changed her. And that's the primary thing that it changes us in the sense that it roots us in our mythopoetic identity, even if it doesn't reveal what that identity is. So what I'm trying to say is, the most important thing of so, about soul encounter is not information, but how it begins to this um, shaping, this reshaping, this shape shifting of our ego. So, our consciousness from adolescent to adult. Okay, back to the um, caterpillar. Um, the fourth phase after the imaginal cells wake up is those imaginal cells are kind of like um, architects. And among other things, and they what they do is they start building the butterfly body, and that takes some time. Like the 
the caterpillars or the caterpillar soup doesn't have a vision of a butterfly and then presto the cocoon um, breaks open and a butterfly comes out it takes some time for the butterfly body to be formed and in the human um, this fourth phase we call metamorphosis and it's when the ego is being shape-shifted by the vision or by the soul encounter and that can take months often takes a year or more for the people we've guided. I think um, I would say I was in that phase for about three years, partly because I had no idea what was going on. <clears throat> so um, to emphasize the importance of metamorphosis, think what would happen to a caterpillar if after it had an image, it's still soup, it had an image of a butterfly or a moth, and the cocoon broke open, then all that soup would just pour out and go splat. Uh, and there'd never be a moth or a butterfly. So it's a really important phase. And at Animus Valley Institute, we, over the last 10, 15 years or so, we've gotten better at understanding what kind of practices support metamorphosis. Because it's not something, it will happen on its own, but if you have practices, it um, goes deeper and faster. Okay, one last phase um, with the the caterpillar, now a moth or a butterfly inside the cocoon, then the cocoon does break open and the moth or butterfly steps out, but it can't fly yet. It's not a fully formed adult yet. What the um, butterfly or moth has to do is to, once it's out of the cocoon and on the same branch that the cocoon was hanging from, it, um, it's going to pump fluid through its wings in order to fill out the structures of the wing and then it has to slowly flap its wing and and you know literally stretch its wings and get ready for flight that's what we call in the human the enactment phase because you're not yet an adult you're still in the cocoon the cocoon stage and um, and you need to begin to dedicate your life to service deeply fulfilling joyful service um, by beginning to do whatever you can to serve others or to serve the world um, as embodied in your mythopoetic identity. You don't have a delivery system yet. You just have everyday human actions that, that in some way resonate with your mythopoetic identity. Um, and once you've done that enough, that's when mystery says, great, good job, um, your e ego is shape-shifted enough, and now I'm tossing you into the next, mystery says, into the next stage of life, which is early adulthood, and your experience is, oh, no. Because you just had several years in what essentially is this nature-based mystery school, and you've been exploring the mysteries of nature and psyche, and it's been one enchanting, often harrowing, but enchanting experience after another. And you somehow felt you'd get to spend your rest of your life that way. But mystery says, no, you think we were just here for your entertainment. No, you're going to actually have to do something with this and, and serve your people. And then you, you might say, well, great, but are you kidding? I'm not ready to do that. And nobody ever feels ready. And and the vision feels like as much of a burden as a, as a blessing. But if we're in a healthy culture, the elders will create a rite of passage for us that will help us orient 
to this new stage of adulthood. That's a beautiful cycle that you've expressed, and the metaphor of the cocoon seems extremely apt. Now, in the case of Carl Jung, he did it without the help of guides and assistants, really. He he did have his wife, and he had a, a lover who helped him through the process. But in the Animus Institute, you actually have guides who understand this process and help people move through it. Exactly. Yeah, that's what we've been apprenticing ourselves to. Uh, we have about 20 guides. And we have um, about 30 um, people in training to be guides. Um, and we're offering um, guidance in 15 or 20 countries around the world now. Um, and that's, that's our passion, that everybody who's um, a guide at Anonymous Family Institute was chosen by mystery to be a soul initiation guide. And each one of us, of course, has our own mythopoetic identity, but each one of our identities aligns with soul initiation guiding in some way. And that's what we're kind of a little community, a learning community, and we're um, supporting each other to discover new practices and new ways to understand uh, the patterns that people go through. And our, our primary teachers are the people we guide. And we listen very carefully to what's going on with them. And when our maps don't quite fit their experiences, we modify our maps. And so that's, yes, that has become our um, discipline, is learning to guide um, this journey, in particular the descent to soul for contemporary people. Um, and... Um, it's, it's, our, it's our joy to do that. And each one of us would say, there's no question we will not stop learning in this lifetime how to get better at doing this. And, and we're setting up structures at our institute now so that uh, that will support uh, our continued learning about the journey of soul initiation through um, the next many generations. Well, Bill Plotkin, this has been a wonderful conversation. I know we've just really scratched the surface of your most recent book, and, and you have four books out. So I'm hopeful that we will have future conversations and we can go into greater depth on, on many of these areas. Just as, as one point to tantalize our, our viewers, I was struck when I read in your work that uh, the way you work with dreams, you find that you can kind of kill a dream by interpreting it, but you can work with a dream to allow the dream itself to transform the dreamer without the need necessarily for uh, uh, some sort of set interpretation. Yes. Um, shall I say a bit about that? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that it seems most Western approaches to dreams, including, I believe, probably most Jungian approaches, um, focus on or center on the interpretation of the dream. Um, and uh, the, the way we approach dreams at Animus uh, follows in the footsteps of the um, Jungian analyst, uh, James Hillman, who, of course, developed his own form of psychology called archetypal psychology. 
And his book, uh, The Dream in the Underworld, it was a real mind blower for so many of us when who are already dream workers and thought, whoa, wait a minute. So he makes the point, James Hillman, that um, when the ego, your own ego or your analyst's ego goes to work on your dream, you lose the dream and you end up with the interpretation. Um, so instead, um, Hillman has taken their perspective of how do we let the dream do its work? How do we support the dream to do its work on the ego rather than the other way around? And then there are dream workers um, who've developed uh, practices for doing that, beautiful, um, very sophisticated practices such as Robert Bosnak and uh, Stephen Eisenstadt and others. Um, so, yeah, that's what we do. And um, for people who are in the cocoon stage, they one of the patterns we're tracking is that they end up having dream, uh, dreams of a certain category or class that people in early adolescent don't have. And people in the cocoon stage are often, uh, often having dreams that are, are initiatory, in the sense of soul initiation. And um, that's one of the ways we can tell what stages a person's in, because it's often you have to get to know a person a while before you can really tell. But people who are in the cocoon stage, they have these um, these dreams in which they're going through some kind of uh, dissolution or dismemberment process and some kind of metamorphic process. And in, in many cases, the dreams themselves are soul encounters. So what we do at Animus is we, we have a variety of, of practices and approaches that help the dream do its work on the ego. And it's very exciting and terrifying, actually, for both the, the initiate and the guide uh, to see this kind of thing unfolding. And there are many examples. And I know you have many other practices as as well, and, and also that the point is not the practice. The point is something underneath all of the practices. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being with me and with our audience today. It's been a real joy to connect with you again after so many years, and I look forward to future conversations with you. I do too, Jeff. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I love this conversation with you, and um, great to connect again. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.